0: Our monthly and one-time givers help make our mission possible. If you'd like to support the work that we do, you can make a tax-deductible donation by visiting journeywomen.org forward slash give. Thank you for investing in the work of Women. Welcome to the Journey Women podcast. I'm your host, Hunter Beales. Life's a journey, we were never meant to walk alone. We all need friends along the way. On the Journey Women podcast, we'll chat with mentors about gracefully navigating the seasons and challenges we face on our journeys to glorify God. Today we're doing a deep dive into one passage of scripture to continue honing our hermeneutical skill set by reading, studying, and applying a challenging passage together. Elizabeth Groves, known as Libby, is a lecturer in biblical Hebrew at Westminster Theological Seminary. Her academic interests include Hebrew and Old Testament exegesis, as well as counseling those who have gone through the loss of a husband or wife. Libby Groves, welcome to the Journey Women podcast. Thank you. It is a privilege to be here. Well, I told you this, but I actually became familiar with your work through Nancy Guthrie. She had you on her show, and you talked about the importance of context when you're studying a biblical text. And I found that conversation just so heartwarming. And fast forward, turns out, actually, I moved to the exact same city as your son, Alistair Groves, who has been on the podcast. And when I found out that you are his mom, in fact, I totally fangirled and thought, oh, maybe, maybe I can have Libby on the podcast one day. Aww, so, you are very sweet. Alistair keeps joking and saying that he was your opening act. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unlikely. <laughs> we're actually going to be walking through a particular text and applying hermeneutical principles, which we talked about in our last episode with Dr. Mm -hmm. Statics. But you teach Hebrew, correct, at Westminster Theological Seminary. That's right, in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. Well, tell the listeners, how did you end up at Westminster? How did you end up studying and teaching Hebrew? Tell us that story, because it sounds like a fascinating one.
1: Sure. The way I ended up at Westminster was back in 1979, We came for my husband to be a student here. We thought it was going to be for two or three years. That was 1979, and I'm still here. (laughs) It's just the way the Lord orchestrated things. My husband ended up joining the faculty at Westminster, actually, and he taught there for a quarter of a century until he died in 2007. And he had a number of health problems, and they were getting worse and worse. And so I had been so blessed to be able to be a stay-at-home mom, which I absolutely loved. It was just the most wonderful career, if you will. But as his health deteriorated, I realized there could come a point where we needed to switch roles and I needed to go out and get a job and Mm. be the breadwinner if he became disabled. So I thought, oh boy, I don't know that I have any marketable skills. Maybe I better go back to school. So I did a degree at Westminster. I squeezed a two-year degree into about five and a half.
0: As most moms have
1: to. (laughs) It does often happen, yes. Yes. I was most of the way through the degree when Al died. Mm. And so I was able to finish, thankfully. But I knew that I definitely had to go out and get a real job with benefits and everything else because I had two children still at home that I was responsible for, two of the four. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't have any idea what to do. So I have a friend who does career counseling. Mm. And so Al died when I had just turned 49. So for my 50th birthday, she said, I want to give you career counseling, which was wonderful. It's four sessions. We did one right after my birthday in January. And I was so busy. We didn't get to the other three until the end of August. And she said, well, you know, you like this and you seem to be good at that. And what about teaching ESL? And both of us thought that would be a great idea. English as a second language so she said maybe you should volunteer in an ESL classroom or something just to see if you really would like it as much as we both think you probably would and I remember thinking that sounds like a really wise idea I don't know how I can have time like I don't know where I would fit that into the schedule but I have to something has to happen to move this process forward so I just prayed Lord I don't know what to do I don't know where I'm going to find time to volunteer in an ESL classroom but please would you just Guide me and somehow open up the time in the schedule, even if that needs to be miraculous. And probably less than a week later, a friend of mine who was teaching Hebrew at Westminster at the time called and said, My TA just had to leave. Would you be my teaching assistant? Wow. And if I had not just had the conversation with my other friend, I would have said, I'd love to, but I don't have time. But I had just prayed, Lord, please open up some way to move this forward. So I thought, well, maybe this is it. So I said yes, and I loved every single solitary second of it. Ah, I was like kid at the beach. It was just so much fun. And then partway through that year, my friend realized that she and her husband needed to move to another part of the country for family reasons. So really it was just the Lord putting me in the right place at the right time, but I love it. Always loved languages. I love teaching. I love, 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 love what I'm doing. I'm so thankful.
0: Oh, bless the Lord. Well, it is such a joy to get to chat with you about this. I know many of us feel intimidated by our Bibles. And I hope that this conversation will just help us to continue developing and owning the skill of good Bible study. Oftentimes I find that people in like the seminary slash academic world use this really intimidating term hermeneutics. Mm-hmm. What does it mean when people actually say that? I think people in general, and academics are
1: certainly no exception, like to use big words when small ones would do just as well.
0: <laughs>
1: so homiletics, why don't you just call it preaching? Hermeneutics is a big
0: term, which just means interpretation.
1: How do you read a passage? How do you understand it? How do you apply it is really what it's about.
0: We talked a lot about this in the previous episode. So if listeners want to go back and get like a full schooling on hermeneutics, they can do that, but we are going to move into a specific text. I would like to, as we move into that specific text, just talk about why does it matter on a practical level what hermeneutics we use?
1: Mm-hmm. It definitely does matter. And so it's strategies and tips and questions and principles and also the sort of underlying assumptions you bring to a text. So here's an example. One very, very basic hermeneutical principle is that the Bible is about God. Yeah. I mean, God wrote it so that we could know him. He is almost shameless in his willingness to be known by his people. And so the Bible is first and foremost about him, which sounds perfectly obvious, but we don't always approach it that way. If you picture toddlers at a birthday party for a two-year-old, let's say. The toddler knows I'm going to, you know, Johnny's house for Johnny's birthday. But the toddler's experience of the party is totally about them. So it's like Johnny's opening presents. I want to open presents. I think I'll start opening some of the presents.
0: I get the first piece of cake. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Exactly. Like
1: I want that corner piece of cake with all the icing. And I don't know if I really want to play this game right now that they want to say. It's like you're in a little box with my kids. We used to talk about being down in your little box and the necessity of coming up out of the box and looking around and realizing there are other people in the world around me and how might they be feeling <laughs> as you get older you go to no longer Johnny now John is you know 10 or 20 or 30 or 70 and you're going to his birthday party and you real you understand the party is about him yeah and we're celebrating him and it's about how he would like this party to go and my role as a guest is to celebrate him and to do whatever lies in my power to make the party a success, to make it a nice experience. You know, we, we get the different, the change in orientation. Yeah. And I think we can sometimes come to the Bible in our little box. Right. You know, what does God want for me? What Mm -hmm. does God want me to do? Jesus died for me. All of which is absolutely true. There's nothing wrong in that, but if that's our whole focus, we think the Bible is a book about God and me, and it's very me-focused, we can miss some very, very important stuff and miss that the Bible is about him, and our role is to celebrate him, to praise and worship him, to obey him, to serve him, to be part of bringing his kingdom on earth. So so it just I think even just something as subtle as that underlying bent of mind is going to make a difference. We all have methods, hermeneutical methods, whether we know that or not.
0: What are some methods that we might be unknowingly using?
1: Yeah. You know, if you picture extremes, some people might come to the Bible and say, this is just a set of propositions. These are timeless truths. I agree or I disagree. I critique them. I analyze them. It all happens in my head and nothing ever leaves that space between my ears. It doesn't make any difference in my life. And somebody else might say, well, the Bible is is something that I need to obey. So every passage I read, I'm looking for what am I supposed to do? And that's good. It, the Bible is to obey, and every verse has application, if you will, which might or might not be something that you go do. It might just be praising and worshiping this amazing God we just read about. But it's going to make a difference what you bring to the text. If you come with you know, the assumption that God wants to make me happy, this is the overarching truth, then if I read a command that I don't really want to obey, I can say, well, I don't really think that's going to make me happy. I think this other thing over here is going to make me happier, so I'm going to go with that. So if you come with the assumption that, God is the creator. He is the ruler of the universe. He is the king on the throne. He is worthy of absolute obedience. Even if he were malicious, just his power alone would you know, make him worthy of being obeyed. But he is good. He is kind. He is all those things he is. And so my calling, if you will, is not to have him make me happy. It's to serve him and be wholeheartedly his. So what what we bring is going to affect how we apply any text to our lives.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, if you're ready, Libby, could (laughs) we break open an example? This is a particularly tricky text, right? It's,
1: I went for one that was not a softball. (laughs) (laughs) Not for me anyway. Maybe for some people, this would be a softball. All right, where are we heading today? We're heading to the last two chapters of Ezra. So I thought we would read something in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. I love the Old Testament, love the New Testament too. But I think the Old Testament can be scary. It can be much harder to know, what do I do with this? What does this say to me? What does this have to do with me in 2020 or whatever year it happens to be? And I think also... There is a certain challenge to know how to read and apply a narrative text. Mm -hmm. I'm reading a story about these people doing this thing and what does that have to do? Am I just going to imitate their example or what do I do with this? So anyway, I chose this passage that is both of those. It's Old Testament and it's narrative, Mm. but it's also a passage that has often bothered me. Mm. So I thought, let's just dive into the deep end here.
0: All right, here we go. We don't typically read passages on women, but that's what we're going to do today because we realize some of you are driving, some of you are doing dishes. Mm-hmm. So Libby is actually going to read the passage aloud right now.
1: Yep, and it will be long-ish. This will probably take about five minutes, but here we go. Okay. So this is Ezra
0: 9 and then into
1: 10. Maybe I should give just a little background first. Ezra is one of the people who came back from the exile So God exiled the people of Israel from the land, sent them off to Babylon. And after a period of time, he brought some of them back. They actually came back in about three waves, if you will. And Ezra came with the second of those three. So he has just, he and the people traveling with him have just arrived in Jerusalem, delivered the goods they were carrying, offered sacrifices and so forth. And then this is where
0: we're picking this story up. Okay. That's helpful. Okay. After
1: these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered round me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, Oh, my God, I am ashamed and blushed to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day we have been in great guilt, and for our iniquities we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today." But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery, for we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, oh, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and had given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant or any to escape? Oh, Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today." Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. While Ezra prayed and made a confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children, according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem, and that if anyone did not come within three days, by order of the officials and the elders, all of his property should be forfeited, and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month, and the twentieth day of the month. And all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. And all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so. We must do as you have said. But the people are many, and it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open. Nor is this a task for one day or for two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. And so on. And then it tells who had married foreign wives and so on. But that's, I think that will get us where we need to go.
0: Wow. So what just happened? (laughs) (laughs) This is not usual. Let's just say (laughs) If I'm reading that right, is it that the people are going to divorce the wives that they have taken because they're foreign? Yes. I've always had this impression that God is behind marriage and not divorce, Mm -hmm. right? But this Uh seems like it's saying the opposite. Is that accurate?
1: No, but it sure seems like it from this passage, doesn't it? Yes, yes. Yeah.
0: This is one of those passages I would have just been like, you know what? I don't get it. All I heard is God is just, and I'm just going to go on forward. Right. <laughs> <laughs>
1: exactly. Or you just kind of fit, sit with this, you know, subconscious like, wow, well, that, that scene, that doesn't. Yeah. It's, right.
0: Yeah. It seems contradictory to like the other things we know to be true. Exactly.
1: That. Exactly. And I think if you just read this, what I just read, and that was yeah. it. And you said, this is, it. this is my day's Bible reading. How do I apply this to my life? You could come up with all kinds of, you might say, well, conclusion number one, God really likes divorce. Conclusion number two, no one should ever marry somebody from another country or culture or ethnicity or whatever. Conclusion number three, you know what? My parents and my friends were right. This guy I married might not be the best choice for me. So I have, in quotes, married the wrong person. So God says I should go get divorced just as fast as I can.
0: Yeah. I'm going to put him away.
1: Exactly <laughs> exactly
0: <laughs> none of
1: none of which conclusions would be good. Here's a hermeneutical principle if you will that we can pick up along the way, which is especially with the Old Testament mm-hmm. you don't want to just jump to an immediate straight line direct application from that text to your life right you um, can often land you in the wrong place or possibly in the right place for the wrong reason that's something to file away in our bag of tricks. Don't do that. So what do we do? Where do we go? Yes. I'm going to toss out eventually three hermeneutical principles, if you will, that may yeah. help with this. And they all could fall into the category of think bigger, like Zoom out. I don't mean Zoom, the conference platform, right? <laughs> video platform. But, but Zoom as in photography term. So like, yeah, get the bigger picture. So the first one is compare the text you're reading with others that talk about the same topic. So this, whatever text you're reading is part of a whole Bible it's not an isolated piece and so find other texts that talk about marriage and divorce for instance put them all out there together and let the clearer texts help you interpret the less clear texts
0: how might somebody go about finding other passages that are comparable in nature
1: if you have a concordance or if you have nowadays people have you know bible software packages that have concordances and one thing to do is say I want to find passages that talk about marriage and divorce. Mm -hmm. So you could look in the concordance for marriage, for divorce, but you might have to, you know, if you don't find anything or not much, you also want to, here's another principle, I suppose, when you want to find texts on a given topic, think of all the words that could be related words. So for marriage, you know, union or united, or in the Old Testament, people often talk about taking a wife. So even look under take, that's going to give you a lot of results. So you're going to have to comb through a lot of those. Or for divorce, sending away, putting away. So just think what other terms seem like biblical-ish terms for that same thing. And that may help you find texts that don't happen to contain the word marriage or divorce, Mm -hmm. but are talking about that topic.
0: Okay. That's helpful hmm
1: So here are a couple of passages that talk about marriage and divorce. This is from Matthew 19. Um, the Pharisees were talking to Jesus and asked, mm-hmm. is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together," let not man separate. Or here are a couple from Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If Any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So you put those side by side with this at the end of Ezra and say, "What's going on here?"
0: It seems as though God is in favor of marriage and yes. not easy divorce. Life is crazy sometimes, and finding time to sit down and read the Bible can be difficult. That is why I love dwell. When I can't find time to read the Bible, I can listen to it. The voices reading the Bible are soothing. They're not your normal narrators. Plus, you can choose calming background music and adjust the pace of the narrator's voice to get things just right. Dwell's newest release is called Dwell Daily, a fresh, thoughtfully crafted devotional that immerses you in the word, allowing you to pray it, meditate on it, and so much more. If you're looking to deepen your engagement with the Bible this year, Dwell Daily is worth checking out. I cannot recommend Dwell enough to help you orient your mind to the life-giving Word of God throughout your day. Go to dwellbible.com forward slash journeywomen to receive your 25% discount today. Again, that's dwellbible.com forward slash journeywomen for your 25% discount to subscribe and spend time in God's Word. How do we go about kind of comparing these and then, I don't know, like holding them in tandem with what we just read in Ezra?
1: Yeah, great question. <laughs> because it seems that when you sit those side by side, they sit very uneasily right. with each other. They, they seem contradictory, at least on the surface. So maybe this is where we can bring in a second zoom out, think bigger principle. Okay. Which is, especially if you're reading something in the Old Testament, See where this text sits within the unfolding story of God's interactions with his people. Mm. So theologians like to call this redemptive history. Yeah. So the history of God's interacting with his people from the beginning to the end. So think of a timeline, if you will, and what has happened on that timeline and where does this text sit within that? Mm Mm-hmm.
0: This is so challenging, like particularly, I mean, I've been studying the Bible now, like actively studying the Bible for like 14 years, Mm -hmm. but I still feel like wrapping my brain around this big story of the Bible is Mm -hmm. something that I like a skill that I'm still trying to hone. So I'm really excited for you to show us what it looks like from this passage, just so that the listeners can kind of. I don't know. I think I think it'll bring a, an element of grace too to when they're approaching a passage like this. Like this requires a lot of time <laughs> to be able to right to be able to execute this well.
1: Yes, and it's worth it. And and all the time that you spend on it is going to be wonderful feeding of your soul from God. Amen. God's
0: amen. Word. So if
1: it takes you a week to work through this, or a month, or
0: amen, whatever, amen. Like,
1: it's all just wonderful feeding from the Lord.
0: It's okay if you don't have that direct application yet.
1: <laughs> exactly. Hold off. Huh? Just wait. 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 It's like anything, you can you can make it super zoomed out. So you'd say, okay, history of redemption. We have creation, mm-hmm. we have the fall, mm-hmm. and then everything else is redemption, heading for glory at the end,
0: mm. right? It can be that
1: simple. It may be helpful for a passage like this to, ha- to zoom in a little bit more than that. So you say, okay, let, let's zoom in a little more closely. Mm-hmm. So yes, creation. God created everything, including man and woman, put them in the garden, walked with them there, had fellowship with them there. And then they sinned and basically broke everything, Mm -hmm. including that intimate relationship. Mm -hmm. So God put them out of the garden. Mankind multiplied, became more and more evil. Things got so bad, God finally just washed the earth clean with a flood and sort of started again with Noah and his family, whom he had preserved in the ark. Okay, so then mankind multiplies again, Mm -hmm. goes out, fills the earth, builds cultures and societies and all of that. And at some point along the line, God chose one man, Abraham, and said, you are going to be my person in the earth. You and I are going to have a special relationship that I don't have with anybody else. Of course, God is God of everyone, but this is something, a special relationship, Mm -hmm. you and your descendants. And Abraham's descendants multiplying took a couple of generations, but eventually that happened. You have Jacob with his 12 sons. Time goes by. The Israelites end up going to Egypt, and because of the famine, God had sent Joseph ahead of them, lived in Egypt for 400 years, multiplied there. Things went south in their relationship with an eventual pharaoh. He enslaved and oppressed them, started murdering their children. Things were bad. So God, under Moses, brought them out of Egypt, brought them to Mount Sinai, and sort of constituted them as a nation, his nation, and again, reminded them, right, We have a special relationship. I'm God of everybody, but you of everybody in the earth, you are my special exclusive people. And I will be your exclusive God. You cannot have any other gods. Mm -hmm. That's not allowed. And he said, I'm going to take you into the land. I promised Abraham. And when you get there, do not mix with the people in the land. Do not intermarry with them. They were to be pure and holy and separate for the Lord. So here are just a couple of texts. This is from Deuteronomy 7. God says, You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. Or this is from Exodus 34. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you. And then the list of nations he will drive out. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break down their pillars and cut down their esherim. For you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice. And you take their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. So you can see like God made it very clear why this is the reason you are not to mm-hmm. mix and intermarry. It's because they will pull you away from me.
0: Totally. And you see that all through like different stories and exactly. Old Testament.
1: That is exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. They mixed, they intermarried, they took their daughters, gave their daughters and so on, and things went bad in a hurry. Mm-hmm. The Israelites ended up becoming just like the Canaanites, mm-hmm. maybe even perhaps worse than the Canaanites. There's a verse in Judges 3, verse 6. It says, And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Hmm. It's interesting because my husband was was one of the kind of part of a group of pioneers who were putting the Hebrew Bible into a format the computer could read, and then going through and flagging every single word. This is a verb. It's a third masculine singular. It has a two Fs suffix, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. Huge job, but anyway, it's what underlies the soft Bible software of today. Uh-huh. And when they, when the computer came to this verse that I just read, it crashed. Wow! Because there are too many they and theirs, and you can't tell what they're referring to. Huh? Right? And their daughters, presumably the Israelites, they took to themselves Israelites for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons of the Canaanites, and they, presumably the Israelites, served their gods, presumably uh-huh. the Canaanites. Like you can't tell who it's referring to. And that is the point of this verse. It's actually just beautifully written because the way it's written reflects what it's talking about.
0: Just how mixed up everything was. Exactly.
1: And you can't tell them the crowd anymore. And actually, the English has supplied the word own and their own daughters, because even in English, we read it and we're like, wait, who's doing what? Wait. But that's the whole point, is that they mixed, they intermarried, and eventually you couldn't tell the Israelites from the Canaanites. Wow. Anyway, they became more and more wicked, and finally God cast them out of the land, which is exactly what he said he was going to do. And that got their attention. So when the Israelites eventually came back to the land, they were greatly chastened and mm-hmm at least some of them, recognized this was a problem, this was not a good idea. Yeah. So this text that we just read from Ezra falls right smack in the middle of that.
0: Wow. Of that period. (laughs) And now you're thinking, oh, okay, helpful. Yes, exactly.
1: (laughs) The text we read is not, here's the biblical teaching on marriage and divorce. Yeah. Marriage and divorce is not the primary thing in this text. What this is about is, wholehearted obedience and devotion to the Lord and mm-hmm. recognizing if there is something that is pulling you away from him, get rid of it, hmm. right? That's the thrust of this text. So if you're going to apply it, apply that not, Oh, I better get divorced quickly. Cause I married the wrong guy. Right. But what's also neat is that, so in Ezra nine, in the passage that I read at the beginning, mm-hmm. Ezra talks about the sin of intermarrying. He talks about it in terms of sin and disobedience, And fair enough, that's exactly what it was. And it gives us, we always want to say, what does this show us about God? That's a fair question to ask of any passage in the whole Bible.
0: That's about the only question that I was able to answer when we read that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and that's that's simple, easy, put it in your pocket. You can always ask, what does this show us about God? One thing that we carry out of Ezra 9 is, wow, God is holy. He is mighty. He is the ruler. He he is worthy of all obedience, unquestioning obedience even. Yeah. But what's neat, and, and that we read in Ezra. Mm-hmm. But what's neat is when you go back and read some of the other texts we've seen, Don't Intermarry and Here Is Why, mm-hmm. you see that that command was actually driven by God's desire to be in relationship with his people, and he doesn't want them drawn away, which just puts a whole different light on it. it you understand it in a different way. With a different flavor, like his protection and his care, exactly. And it's be- precisely because he wants to be to have that relationship mm-hmm. and recognize he knows this is gonna this is gonna ruin them, what we have here.
0: Mm-hmm. That's really really helpful.
1: The marriage of God and His people is a analogy, a picture that runs through the Old Testament, especially in the prophets. So you have Hosea, who was commanded, "Go marry a prostitute," and she's going to be unfaithful to you, and this is going to be Very uncomfortable. And he does, but that whole thing, Hosea's relationship with his wife and her unfaithfulness, Mm -hmm. is meant to be a picture that the Israelites can look at and say, Oh my goodness, that's what we're doing to our God. God is like Hosea and we are like Gomer. You have Ezekiel 16 where God talks about finding Israel as a a baby in the wilderness covered with blood and, and caring for her. And eventually she becomes old enough for marriage and he takes her as his wife. It's just a beautiful, tender picture. And then, of course, He talks about how she mistreated him and took all the things he gave her and used them with her lovers and so on. Isaiah 54 says, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. Mm. Jeremiah 3, Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. Mm. Or in Jeremiah 31, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So this picture of God as the husband and his people as the wife is there all through the Old Testament. And, you know, God wanted to be their only God, mm-hmm. his only people. It's it's that exclusive relationship. Mm. Obviously, he is God of everyone, but but this was something different. Yeah, and you think of the blessings that go with that relationship. Mm. You read Deuteronomy 28, just this long list of the ways that God would bless his people. You will be blessed, mm. you know, your grain and your feeding trough and your flocks and your house. And when you go in and when you go in when you go out and everywhere in the city and in the country, I'll just bless you, bless you, bless you, bless you, bless you. The Lord rejoices over his people as his treasured possession. He dwells with them. He protects them. He is a warrior on their behalf. He doesn't sleep. He's always watching over them. And I think something that's helpful to remember is that from the beginning of God choosing Abraham to have this exclusive relationship, the eventual purpose was always to bless all the nations of the earth. I and mean, that's what he says when he calls Abraham. He says, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But during this Old Testament period, Israel was to remain separate. And pure and holy unto just
0: God. Yeah, this has always been like a particularly interesting thing for me to think about, especially as I'm trying to like make that cross over into the Mm -hmm. present day. But we see in the Old Testament that when something threatened to pull Israel's relationship apart, like from God that Mm -hmm. the call was to rip it out. You know, you just see that all through the text, like they're to rip out anything, do away with anything that threatens their relationship with God, correct?
1: Yes, absolutely. And as we said, you know, every text shows you something about God. And I think this text in Ezra underscores that, you know, who God is as holy, the creator, the king, the ruler, the exalted, almighty, reigning God on the throne who is worthy of obedience and jealous. in one of the texts, you know, it says the Lord who is jealous, the English puts a capital J, you know, is a jealous God. We think of jealousy as only a bad thing, but there is a very appropriate and right and good jealousy.
0: Right. Like you want your husband's attention, not just because you want to feel good about yourself, but because you want to grow in your intimacy with him.
1: Exactly. And, you know, it's, you have other friends. He has friends. That's great. They, you know, you get to get whatever. But that intimate place that happens only in your marriage, it would be completely inappropriate to invite somebody else into that or to share that. So we should be jealous in the right sense, jealous of things that threaten our marriages, for instance, jealous of, and it could be just, I'm working too hard. I'm working too many hours. I need to cut back because this is affecting our marriage. So, you know, anything that threatens to eat away at, or intrude into that exclusive intimate relationship needs to be cut out. And that's exactly what we're looking at here, I think. So we could leave things here. We could say, great, we have now understood this passage much better seeing it where it sits in the timeline of redemptive history. Good, the call is to wholehearted obedience, get rid of anything that would threaten or pull you away from the Lord, compete with him. Excellent, we're done, let's go home. And you could do that. But probably we're not quite done. We had a friend years ago who would say to preachers, he, he would say, look, when you finish preaching your sermon, if you realize, you know what, a rabbi could have preached that sermon, yeah, then you have missed something. You have missed the question of, okay, yeah, that's all good, but how is this Christian scripture? Totally. So I guess it leads to the next zoom out, think bigger principle, which is that everything in the whole Bible, points
0: to Jesus. Yes, I love this one, but I don't always know how. <laughs> Help me.
1: Yeah, and there are so many different ways that things in the Old Testament point ahead to Jesus. Obviously, there are some prophecies that you read it and you're like, well, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. Yes, I can see it. It was right there. That one's easy. <laughs> Got it. And other things, you know, that talk, there can be institutions. So prophets, priests, kings, All, in their own way, point ahead to Jesus, who was going to be the prophet. Yes, like a little
0: picture of Christ. Exactly. Okay.
1: And there are things like the sacrificial system. Yes. Okay, so I am guilty. I come to the Lord. I offer a sacrifice of an animal whose life will be taken, whose blood will be shed so that my sins can be forgiven. That is a very clear picture of what Jesus is
0: going to do. The ultimate sacrifice.
1: Exactly. And sometimes, you know, certain events, the Exodus, God delivering his people out of oppression, out of the place of slavery and death and setting them free to be his people. That's what Jesus does, setting us free from sin, from Satan, from death. Abraham offering Isaac or almost offering Isaac. You know, it's a picture of what God was going to do in offering his own son, and he was not going to get off at the last second. He actually went through it. So there are so many different ways that the Old Testament points forward right. to Jesus. And sometimes they are, you know, you see King David and you say, oh, I see how a good godly king, this is for taking a certain slice of his life, a good godly king whose heart is for God helps me understand what that looks like when we get to Jesus. Sometimes it's by contrast. You look at some of the wicked kings and you're like, okay, the way this points to Christ is crying out for somebody who's going to do this differently, who's yeah. going to be better. So how about this, Ezra?
0: But this, <laughs> I'm smiling so big. Cause I'm like, got it. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. But then Ezra nine and 10. <laughs>
1: exactly. Some of them are not so immediately transparent. Yes. So let's just toss some things out there. Okay. Okay. So Ezra was chosen by God sent from Persia back to the people of God Nice. To teach them his law, to lead them in obedience by teaching and by example. Okay, that sounds something like Jesus coming to earth, sent by God to help us do those things too. Mm. If we left it there, that would not be nearly far enough, but let's just leave that there for the moment. By contrast, you have the people at the time who, like us much of the time, are like, we really want what we want, and we're going to go get what we want, and we don't really care that much what God has said about this. Or yeah, maybe we care, but I'm going to do it anyway. And by contrast, you have Jesus, who is the faithful Israelite, right, who lived wholeheartedly loving and serving God, his father, did not give his heart to anything else or turn away from God at any moment. Mm -hmm. So there you've got by contrast. Ezra, it says, you know, he was appalled at the people's sin. In some ways, I kind of feel a little badly for Ezra. It's kind of like a guy who's you know, doing time f- on a drug charge, let's mm-hmm. say, and realizes in prison, like, this was really dumb. I don't know what I was thinking. That I mm-hmm. just it like com- comes to a whole different perspective on life and all of that. And maybe is even released, paroled early on the basis of that. Anyway, goes home. I want to go straight. No more of this drug stuff. I am going to, you know, walk the straight and narrow and have a life that's characterized by that. And then he finds out his friends are making meth in the basement. Yeah. Right. And it's like, guys, guys, stop. Like, stop. You just you, you don't know how bad this is. Please stop this. You know, and, and you get a little of that sense with Ezra. Like he got it. He understood how serious this sin was and where it was going to take them. Maybe mm. the already had taken him. And Jesus took sin very seriously. Not only in the things he said, he had some pretty harsh judgments of sin that he spoke, but he took sin so seriously that he came to die for it. Ezra was a priest just before the where we started reading. Uh, it just says that the returned exiles offered sacrifices to the Lord. Now, it doesn't say that Ezra was the one offering that sacrifice. He might have been, might have been the other priests. But he definitely serves in that role of priest of representing the people before God. Mm-hmm. As he prays for them, you can hear he is one with them saying, look at what we have done. We are guilty before you. He's interceding on their behalf as one of them. Hmm. And Jesus, we know, was a priest. And he did and does represent us before the Father as a human. Yeah. And obviously, he offered the ultimate sacrifice, the once for all, this is for all time sacrifice of himself. And he prays for us even now. Yeah. We know that he is, even in this moment, interceding on our behalf. Yeah. As a priest does. Ezra could only beg for mercy. Like he knew we are caught red handed. We are guilty, guilty, guilty before you. We, there is nothing but there's no ground we can stand on and say, yeah, but you really ought to consider this loophole. It's like, we are guilty. We can do nothing but cast ourselves before you and beg for your mercy. When Jesus intercedes for us, it's on the basis of him having already paid the price for that sin. That's a whole lot. That's a whole different situation. And with Ezra, the whole point of this passage is that Israel is to remain separate. Right? That's what this whole thing is about. You have intermarried. You have mixed with the other nations. Mm -hmm. That's the exact problem in this passage. But in Jesus, because of everything he did, which was always the plan from the beginning, now the invitation to that relationship with God is actually thrown wide open to the Gentiles as well. So that promise that God originally made to Abraham, and you, all nations of the earth, will be blessed, now actually finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And there is no longer that exclusive. My relationship is just with Israel. It's like everybody, all nations, all people, language, tongues are invited to come into that relationship. Mm. Galatians 3, 8 says, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Mm. In Ephesians 3, 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Major, major, major contrast there. Yeah. And maybe one more. The best Ezra could do was urge and exhort and plead and threaten, if you don't come take this oath, you're going to lose all your property. And so like that's what he had to work with. That's what he did. But Jesus actually gives his people the Holy Spirit Hmm. so that we actually can obey. There is power there that was not available in the same way. To the people of Ezra's time. Ezra's time. So when we're faced with, you know what, this thing in my life is actually yeah. pulling me away from God, there is power there to excise it. Yeah. Because we live in the age of the spirit.
0: It's so incredible how this passage that seemed so distant, that yeah. seemed <laughs> like, how could I ever possibly pull away anything that could apply to my life today, has become precious in this last 48 minutes of us chatting and I'm already thinking about what is it that is pulling me away from God but I would love for you to help us cross that bridge into application in our own lives because I am definitely guilty of having made applications based on the text but not doing it well. Yeah. Can you tell us how can we apply this odd seeming Old Testament text to our lives specifically as Christians? Not yep. with mass divorces, obviously. Right. <laughs> yes,
1: correct. And you know, we want to ask, is is this message still in effect in the New Testament that we are called to wholehearted obedience, right? And love of the Lord. And we when we see our sin, we need to repent and put this sin aside. Yes, of course it is. I mean, Jesus says the greatest commandment of all is you shall love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, mind, strength. Yeah. You know, I think we tend to be committed to our own happiness as our highest allegiance, and that is absolutely not okay. Here, are just a couple of verses Matthew 10 Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Luke 14, 27, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Mm. Luke 9, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And this one from Matthew 5, I think we can hear a clear echo to what we read in Ezra. Hmm. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. That seems to me to to have that same sort of sense of, listen, guys, sin is really serious. You do not want to tolerate anything that mm-hmm. is going to pull you away from God. There are so many things that can compete in our, I mean, we all know this.
0: <laughs> yes. I mean, for me, like, I'm just going to be real. You know, like I think about social media for me, Libby. I constantly see myself like tripping up in that area where you're like, you know, oh, I want to be faithful and proclaim the Lord to whoever it is that is here to listen. But then there's also this tension of like, I'm like, feel like sometimes I'm like building my own tower of Babel. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, let's yeah. just build up all these followers and listeners, and da da da. And so yeah. it, there's a lot of tension there for me where it's like, Callie, I feel that prick of conviction. So what do I do with that? You know, yeah. like, do I cut it out forever and all time? Like, do I just delete? See you later. Change the password. Never go back. This takes a lot Mm -hmm. of wisdom to navigate this stuff.
1: It does. It really does. There are so many things that pull at our hearts. And, the you know, what do I do with this may be different for each of them. Mm
0: -hmm. So
1: if, you know, it may be just something that we treasure more than we should. Yeah. And that can be anything. It can be a substance. It can be, for me, maybe dark chocolate covered ginger from Trader Joe's.
0: (laughs) If I had a Trader Joe's, I would send you a box as a thank you, but you know it's an hour away. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I can sit down and polish off an entire box and then really regret it. But, you know, it could so for somebody else, it might be being physically fit, right? It's, it, it's not that, oh, of course, chocolate is bad and fitness is good. It's what is that doing in your heart? What role is it playing in your heart? Yes. You know, it may be an escape thing, food, movies, books, hobbies, work, right? Work can be an escape from trouble at home or whatever, anything that we find our identity in, which yeah. again, could be hard work. It could be a very successful podcast. That is a wonderful blessing to so many people. Yeah. But it's what happening in our heart. It can be ministry. It can be relationship. It could be, I am all organized and I'm on top of life that I have no trouble with that because that's not me <laughs> at all. <laughs> the good opinion of others. Want people to think I'm a Hebrew expert, which I certainly am not. You know, whatever. It doesn't matter. It's not the thing in itself. It's what is the role of that thing in your heart. It can be a perfectly good thing. Yeah. But if it's more important to you than God, if it pulls you away from God, if it if it lets pride grow under the surface of something that on the surface looks very godly and holy and yeah. you know wonderful, and if we can recognize if the Holy Spirit shows us something that it's like. Wow, that is really a problem. It can feel like just ripping out a part of you, which I'm sure is how these guys felt back in Ezra's time, having to put away their wives and children. Like that's major, major surgery. Hmm. You know, God is the same God. He still wants our hearts, all of our hearts. He is so worthy of all of our hearts. He is still the holy God ruling on the throne of the universe, Mm -hmm. mighty beyond anything we will ever remotely understand, even when we see him face to face. He is also the God who is still infinitely good and compassionate. He is the God who still wants that relationship with his people. So none of that has changed. If Israel was blessed to be in a relationship with that God, how much more are we who have God's very own spirit living in our hearts? Mm. God dwelt with Israel in the tabernacle and the temple, and that was a tricky business because He was a holy God, and they were sinful people. And that, you know, if you read the instructions for the tabernacle, it kind of reads like a nuclear plant safety manual. <laughs> like, <laughs> Don't touch this. Don't go there. Be careful. Nobody but this person handles that. You know, because He was holy, and His Holiness would have incinerated them. Yeah, still would incinerate us if it weren't for our being washed safe in the blood of Christ. Totally. And Jesus dwelt with people. I mean, First John talks about, you know, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which our eyes have seen, which we looked upon, have touched with our hands. That's Jesus. He dwelt among us. And now he actually indwells us. He's inside us by the Holy Spirit. That's unbelievable. Yes. God protected and fought for Israel. Jesus protects us even from death. Hebrews 2 talks about he likewise partook of our flesh and blood that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He has defeated all of our enemies. And, you know, if we have time, let's do one more zoom out, even bigger picture. Okay. Tell us. We started at the beginning. We took it up to the old Testament, all of which was just rushing forward to Jesus coming, Mm -hmm. living, dying, being resurrected, sending to heaven, sending us his spirit. But, You know, we can think all the way out to the end of that history, the end end, final end. Mm. And what's there, lo and behold, the marriage picture comes back in because where we're Ah. heading is a wedding feast. Yes. And we're the bride. Our groom is there waiting for us. And in fact, his Holy Spirit is helping us get ready for that wedding.
0: Mm.
1: And so every time he calls us to rip out this thing that feels so precious to us, it's to get us ready for our groom. He is sanctifying us. He is he's washing away those blemishes and who doesn't want to get ready for their wedding? You know, and that could be just, Oh, I want to look good in my wedding dress. Like I want to look good in a bathing suit at the beach this summer, mm. but it's not just getting ready for the wedding. It's getting ready for our groom. Yeah, it's, it's out of love for him. And I think if in the moment of there's that box of Trader Joe's chocolate, or here's this pride festering under this, you know, whatever, like that ugly thing in my heart, If I'm just thinking of it as, well, you know, relative happiness, no, I think I'd rather eat the chocolate, no, whatever. That's a very low level way to approach it, right? But if it's like, I don't think Jesus is so concerned whether I'm going to look at a bathing suit this summer, that's not not why he doesn't want me to eat the chocolate. But he is concerned with the beautiful fruit of holiness Mm -hmm. that grows in my heart when I let go of whatever it is that's so precious to me and for his sake out of love for him because he doesn't want that thing to draw me away from him. And I don't want that thing to draw me away from him. Or maybe I do not care as much as I should, but I want to love him and to cry out to the Holy spirit, please, would you help me to love Jesus more and to live out of that love that he has for me?
0: Hmm. Sweeter than honey and Trader Joe's chocolate. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> well, I know everybody is excited to continue growing in this skill. Do you have any practical resources or one practical step that they might take to develop this skill?
1: I think in terms of having, having that sense of the big, bigger, biggest picture, a couple of really tiny things, maybe just to take a piece of paper and draw that timeline, starting with creation and ending with revelation and say, okay, so creation, fall, that happened pretty quickly. All the rest of this is redemption. But here, you know, at this point, I'm going to put the cross that represents Jesus. And then as you read through the Bible, Old or New Testament, just see what, where does this fit on that timeline? Mm. You know, so you've got the fall and then up you know, to the flood and then kind of a restored again. And then, oh, here's where God calls Abraham. And then period of time, and then oh, here they are in Egypt. There's the Exodus. That's kind of the salvation that event of the old testament. Yep. Okay, now they're in the land, they've got judges. Now we have a period of kings. Oh, now we have two kingdoms. Oh, now we have exile. Now they're back from exile. Just to have a kind of a skeleton to hang yes. things on. Cross references are really helpful if you Bible has cross-references. Mine has them in the middle column in a, you know, but microscopic print.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: But if you're saying so, when we read, you know, in Ezra. Your prophets have told us do not intermarry with these people. You're like, I don't have any idea what he's talking about. But let me check the project. Maybe that will send me back to places where that those commands were given. Cool. Helpful to read if your Bible has the little brief introduction to a to yes. a book of the Bible. This is set roughly this period. It was probably written by so-and-so. Here's what was going on. That can be really helpful too. Yeah. And just it's helpful to to read a tiny little bit of scripture and really marinate in it but it's also helpful if you can find the time to just like read a whole book. Yes. Or read all the letters of Paul at a time. Yep. Or yep. you know, yep. here's Isaiah. Might need two sittings, but but just kind of to get the more of the vista.
0: Yeah, I love that so much. I wish I could have you just go on and on about what that looked like for you, particularly in a season of motherhood. But we have other Mm -hmm. episodes on that. So everybody, (laughs) go go back. (laughs) Go listen to those things. But Libby, one of the things that I love to hear from every guest who comes on the show is something that this podcast was really born out of feeling like I had an abundance of mentors in my own life by God's grace and wanting to mm-hmm. share them with other people. And so now as it's expanded beyond my direct mentors into mentors of my mentors and things uh-huh. like that, I love to hear from every guest who comes on the show, who is it that's had the greatest impact on your relationship with the Lord?
1: Mm. There are many people. Obviously, who have had an impact, many of them substantial impact. I would probably say my husband. Mm -hmm. He was just a wonderful, wonderful man of God, loved the Lord, loved people well. (laughs) Yeah. And just to see his continual heartbeat of love for the Lord and just such an awareness of the incredible grace that the Lord gives us in Christ. So, yeah, I probably would say he probably had the biggest impact
0: your family has had an impact on so many of us. I even have a friend who she now mentors me at a distance and helps Mm -hmm. me with a lot of the struggles that I have as a young mom. And Mm -hmm. she was telling me actually that she knows you from their time at Westminster, as I told her that I am interviewing you today. Her name is Hope Blanton. Hope and Ray.
1: Yes, Hope and Ray. Absolutely. Wonderful. The opportunity
0: to uh, learn from both you and your husband. And she told me it was such a gift just to get to step foot in your home and experience the hospitality that you exude. And so I just thank you so much for doing that with us today, even at a distance on the Journey Women podcast. We pray this conversation with Libby encourages you to crack open your Bible and to begin putting some of the zoom out principles she shared into practice. If you need additional help doing that, be sure to check out all of our archives on Bible Study over on our website at journeywomenpodcast.com. Thanks so much for joining us today and be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on new episodes of this series as they release every Monday. If you want to catch us throughout the week, you can find us on socials at journeywomenpodcast. Today's episode was mixed and produced by Chad Michael Snavely and the team at Sound On, Sound Off. We are so grateful for them and for you. It's a joy to get to journey alongside you guys. Can't wait to see you here next Monday. Have a great week.